Good evening. We continue our series in the book of Galatians by picking back up in chapter 4. Would you please rise out of reverence for God's holy and inerrant word? That's Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 31 this evening. Please give careful attention to this reading of God's word. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the living and active word of the living and true God, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through soul and spirit, bones and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Please receive it as such. You may be seated. In reflecting over this week on this passage of Scripture, there's a lot of rich connections throughout Scripture that you can make. It's an interesting text. We're talking about allegory. We're talking about Hagar, Sarah, all these different things. But my mind recurrently went back to the parable of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is the parable of the prodigal son. Now, it's a familiar text, but I think it's helpful to rehearse um, some of the salient points of that parable. Uh, Jesus tells a parable of a father and his two sons. The younger son, in contradiction to the way the culture worked and etiquette, asked for his share of the property while his father was still alive. He wanted it in capital and money. And the father acquiesced to this and gave him that money. And this son goes away to a far country, we're told. In your mind, as a Jew, think far country, Gentile. And this young son goes, and we learn that he lives his life recklessly, and he loses all of his wealth, so much so that he becomes completely impoverished. And at that time, a famine comes on the land. And he is desperate for food, so he sells himself and his labor to a farmer. And this man, who is the son of a somewhat wealthy man, is now forced to serve and feed pigs in the field of this far-off country. 
And so much so that he is desiring to eat the pellets of food that he's giving to the pigs. Again, think Gentile. When Jesus is telling this parable, he's telling us that this son is relegated to the status of a Gentile sinner. He's in a far-off country, and he's feeding pigs. One day, this man comes to his senses, and he remembers how even the slaves in his father's house had enough food and more. So he determines himself to rise and go back to his father's house, and he plans a speech. He knows that he's no longer worthy to be called a son of this father, but he's willing to sell himself into slavery to his father. So he goes back with this intention. And you remember the story. The man sees his son on the road. He recognizes his step, and he runs to him in an act that would have been shameful at that time, especially because of the shame that the son brought on him by leaving the family and living like a sinful Gentile. But this father embraces him. And in the middle of the son's speech, saying, I'm not worthy to be your son, he's like, servants, go, get a robe for him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the fatted calf, and we're going to have a celebration before the son can say, I'm not worthy to be your son. I want to be your slave. The father cuts him off and restores him. And as they're celebrating, there's the older brother. We can't forget about him. And he hears the mirth. He hears the dancing. He hears the celebration of the father and his house over the restoration of his son. The son which the father says that once he was dead, but now he's alive. Once he was lost, but now he's found. The older brother asks the servants, what's going on in the house? And he learns that his brother had come back and he becomes angry at this. And he is offended that the father did this. But again, the father humbles himself. And in a way that would have even been seen as shameful, he comes out from hosting the feast and he begs his older son to come in and rejoice over the, the restoration of your brother. And what's, what's the older brother say? All these years, I have served you faithfully. And you've never even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. And here, this person who wasted your property on prostitutes, you're killing the fatted calf for him? No, I won't come in. In the first two parables that came before this, Jesus gave a conclusion to it. He said that the woman who found the coin came to her neighbors and they rejoiced with her. The, the man who found the one sheep of his 99 and the neighbors rejoiced. But this one doesn't finish with that application. It leaves an open-ended ending to the story. Will the older brother recognize the restoration which has been brought? Will he recognize that the father is embracing his son once again? Will he recognize him as a brother? And again, Jesus doesn't apply it because the open-ended question is there for the Pharisees and the scribes who brought the grumbling to Jesus. Will you recognize God's grace to the tax collectors, to the prostitutes, to the lepers, to the Gentiles from the pig pens? Will you recognize this grace? I linger at length on this parable of a father and his two sons because it so helpfully encapsulates the redemptive historical situation which is taking place in Galatia. As this parable of our Lord involved two sons, so too the text before us today in Galatians tells us a story of two sons. The older brother in the parable represents the nation of Israel and its pride, 
and in its sin as manifested by its religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. They think that they are sons of God, sons of Abraham, but they live as slaves to the law. And they see their obedience much like that older son, as earning favor, earning that goat. That's how they view themselves. The younger brother represents the apparently most sinful of Israelite society. Tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers. But even more, it represents the Gentile nations. All those whom the Father is going to call to himself and embrace in his compassionate love, even those from the pig pen. Likewise, the false teachers were still trapped in thinking about themselves in slavery. They thought they had to earn God's favor through circumcision and obedience to the law. You see, much like the older brother didn't rejoice at the the restoration of his sinful brother, they were not rejoicing that the, the Galatian Gentiles had been called from the pig pen and embraced as sons. Rather than rejoice, they sought to bring the Galatians, into slavery, even as they themselves were in. As the father in the parable rejoiced that his son, who was once dead, was alive, lost, and now found, so too Paul wants the Galatians, he wants us to believe and rejoice in the fact that they were once dead, but now they are made alive. They were once lost, but now they're found. They were once slaves, but now they are beloved sons of and daughters of God. What we'll focus on today is the power of God's Word and His promise to bring death from life, to make slaves into sons, and to secure our place in the heavenly Jerusalem where our citizenship is. To come to that conclusion, we'll look at this from three different angles. First, we'll look at two mothers, verses 21 through 23. Second, we will look at two mountains, verses 24 through 27. And finally, we'll look at two sons, verses 28 through 31. Two mothers, two mountains, and two sons. Let's look at that first point, two mothers. So far in Galatians chapter 4, Paul has argued that through receiving the gospel by faith, the Galatians have been set free from the elemental principles of the world. But that now the false teachers are seeking again to put them back into slavery. Paul has directly addressed them as brothers and sisters for whom he is again agonizing in childbirth, as it were, wanting to see Christ formed in them. He's expressed his desire to be with them and change his harsh tone. But at this time, he can't change that tone. He still needs to speak directly to them, hard and firm truths. And he does that in verse 21, saying, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? This is a direct address to the Galatians who, through the influence of the false teachers, are desiring to place themselves under the law. Paul is saying, have you read? Have you listened to? Have you understood the law? In this instance, Paul has different ways of using that term Law, sometimes it can be really narrow and sometimes more broad. Right now, he's using that term to refer to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses. And Paul is referring to that here, and he's directly challenging the Galatians, and by extension, the false teacher's understanding of the Pentateuch. While Paul uses usual way of quoting Scripture, for it is written... 
yet he doesn't actually quote a specific passage. Instead, he's referring to an entire narrative which stretches across Genesis 16 through 21. I know we've gone over this a bit in prior sermons, and you're probably familiar with this, but it's very important that we understand this background to understand the argument. So I'm going to outline it uh, somewhat briefly or lengthily, uh, depending on your perspective here. In Genesis 12, God had called Abraham, remember, out of Ur of Chaldee, and he told him, I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to give you this land of Canaan. So Abraham goes and follows the Lord's call. And he enters the land of Canaan and dwells in tents. Then the Lord, in Genesis 15, comes to Abraham again. And at this point, Abraham has not had a child yet. He's been living in this land for ten years And he wants to know, am I going to have an heir? Is Eliezer, my servant, going to be my heir? And the Lord says, no, but you will have a son. It will not be Eliezer of Damascus. Ten years later, Abraham and Sarah still don't have a son. They don't have a child. And they come up with this great plan that they're going to help the Lord along. So Sarah says, take my maidservant, Hagar, and have a child with her. This was a practice in the ancient Near East. It was acceptable to bring an heir. It wasn't acceptable for the people of God, but this is what they did. And they tried to fulfill the covenant through a fleshly effort, through giving Hagar to Abraham. And she bore a son, and they named him Ishmael. And from that time point that she conceived, she and Sarah had strife. And so harsh was Sarah to her that Hagar fled in the wilderness and the angel of the Lord found her and he heard her crying and he said, I'm going to bless your son Ishmael and make of him great, a great nation. And he sent her back to Sarah. Thirteen years later in Genesis 17, the Lord appears to Abraham again and commands him to walk before me and be blameless. That's a good command to make after what Abraham just did in Genesis 15 in taking Hagar to himself. At this time, the Lord restates his covenant and he reiterates his promise. And he clearly states that it's through Sarah, not Hagar, not anyone else, that the promised seed will come. Child in my old age, oh, that you would accept and bless Ishmael. And the Lord says, I will bless Ishmael. He will be a a great nation of 12 tribes, but I will not establish my covenant with him. My covenant will be with Sarah's offspring. And you will call his name Isaac, which means he laughs, even as Abraham laughed at the concept. It's not a coincidence that in this chapter, the Lord gives the covenant sign of circumcision. Abraham tried to take the fleshly effort and to do this through his own will and his own strength. And the Lord has him cut off a piece of that procreative organ to show that the promise is going to come about through the Lord's intervention, not through uh, fleshly efforts. In Genesis 18, the Lord visits Abraham again and restates his promise. And this time it's Sarah who laughs at the thought that she should give birth in her old age. The Lord responds by saying, is anything too hard for me? And she denies her laughter and he says, no, but you did laugh. And the Lord promises this time next year you will conceive and bear a son and you should call his name Isaac. In chapter 21, we are told that the Lord visited Sarah 
and fulfilled his promise that he opened her womb and her and Abraham conceived and bore Isaac. I take this time to outline the story of Abraham because all of this background is contained and assumed in Paul's simple statements in verses 22 through 23. Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. The slave woman is Hagar. The son she bore was Ishmael. He was born through the fleshly efforts of Abraham and Sarah through the natural process of procreation using Hagar to this end. This is what Paul means when he says that the son of the slave was born according to the flesh in this natural and sinful way. The the free woman, of course, is Sarah. And her son is Isaac. Paul says that Isaac was born through promise because his birth, in a real sense, was miraculous. The Lord went above and beyond the natural procreative process by causing a couple in their 90s to be able to conceive and give birth. Isaac was born through promise. The Lord brought life where there was barrenness. He brought life where it once was not. Having gone over this messy, sinful, and complex narrative, we can better understand Paul's argument, yes, but there's something else we can make an observation about this. Paul refers to this whole narrative, which is pretty complex as we just went over it, in a rather ambiguous way. It, he almost assumes, or he does assume, that his audience would be familiar with it. Later, he'll name Hagar, but he nowhere named Sarah, Ishmael, or Isaac. Remember, he's writing to the Galatians. He's not writing to Jews by birth. How familiar would they be with this narrative? By the way Paul subtly refers to it, though, we can guess that Paul knows that they are familiar with it. It's because of this reason that scholars have speculated that the false teachers were probably using this narrative to reinforce their doctrine of circumcision and the necessity of law-keeping. After all, Abraham, the father of the covenant, was circumcised. Isaac, the son of the promise, was circumcised. Even Ishmael was circumcised. That seems to be what their argument was, and it seems that Paul is trying to give a real re-reading of this text and to give a true understanding of it. In any case, this passage presses home to us the importance of being familiar with the Old Testament scriptures so that we can understand our New Testament. Knowing these narratives can help us understand how the New Testament authors are making use of the Old Testament, which brings us to our next point. We've just considered two mothers. Now let's look at two mountains, verses 24 through 27. Having introduced the Abrahamic narrative, Paul now begins applying it to his contextual situation. So he states in verse 24, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Paul uses the language of allegory. Now, we shouldn't think about our modern technical definition of an allegory, which sees a fictional story which is communicating uh, truths about reality. We can think of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's a fictional story about a man named Pilgrim who goes on a journey to the celestial city. All of this is fiction, but it represents true spiritual realities about the Christian life. 
but the story itself is fictional. Paul isn't using the language of allegory that way. He believes in the historical narrative of Genesis. He believes that Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac were real people, and that these events really happened. But he's saying that these historical people and events provide an analogy for what is going on in his day. And on top of this, Paul also believes in the sovereignty of God who ordained these events and had them inscripturated so that they might instruct us and teach us. The analogy that Paul sees here is that Sarah and Hagar represent two covenants. Paul explicitly identifies Hagar with the Mosaic covenant, saying, One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Recall that Paul has spent a lot of time in this little letter describing the purpose of the law and the place of the Mosaic covenant so far in the history of redemption. As he said earlier in chapter 3, the law, which came 430 years afterwards, did not annul or do away with, make ineffectual, the covenant that God had previously established with Abraham. But the law was put in place because of transgressions, Paul says. Its purpose was to show the sinfulness of sin and to demonstrate the Israelites' need of a Savior and to drive them to faith in the coming Christ. The law, the Mosaic Covenant, it's not contrary to the promise given to Abraham in the covenant which God established with him, but it, it imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, those under the law were held captive by the law, Paul says, imprisoned until the faith would be revealed, until Christ would come. So in its very nature... The Mosaic Covenant, the law, has an imprisoning and enslaving aspect to it. It shows you your sin and it shows you that you cannot keep this and you need a Savior. So that's one reason why Paul connects it to Hagar as she was a slave. But there's more. So in verse 25, Paul states, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. So Paul is not simply comparing the Mosaic Covenant and its historical context to Hagar as such, but he's specifically referring to the law as it's being practiced presently in Jerusalem to the unbelieving Jews who have not received Christ. He says the present Jerusalem. That's why he draws the connection between Mount Sinai to the present day Zion to Jerusalem. Remember that earlier in chapter 4 when Paul talked about the law and abstraction from Christ. If you divorce the law from Christ and you try to keep it, he said that this was the same as being enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. It's just as bad as pagan worship because you're missing the entire point of the law. For Christians like the Galatians who had been set free from slavery, to put themselves under the law would be to put themselves back into slavery. Again, the entire purpose of the law was to prepare for and lead to Christ. Now that he's come, the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant has been fulfilled. Yet the unbelieving Jews and the false teachers at Galatia are themselves imprisoned under law, and they want to bring others into this enslavement as well. They're zealous for you, but not for a good purpose. Paul takes up the theme from the Old Testament of Jerusalem being pictured as a woman, being pictured as a mother, 
and her children or the children of Israel. But here he's saying that physical, unbelieving Jerusalem, it is like a woman. But right now it's like Hagar, the slave woman. And her children are enslaved with her, for she is in slavery with her children. But in contrast to the present earthly Jerusalem, which is in slavery with her children, Paul states in verse 26, But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Here he used that language of an above Jerusalem, or a Jerusalem which is above. The the author of Hebrews will talk about a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly city. And Paul will say that our citizenship is in heaven. These Galatians are being tempted to look at the grandeur of Jerusalem, to look at the sacrificial system, and to want to be a part of something. And Paul's saying that you're already part of so much greater spiritual realities. Your citizenship is in heaven. You are part of the Jerusalem which is above. While he does not state it explicitly, this heavenly city is identified with Sarah, even as he says that she is free and she is our mother. Notice how Paul had used a temporal designation for the earthly Jerusalem. He called it the present Jerusalem. We expect almost for him to use a temporal designation for the Jerusalem above, but he doesn't. He used that spatial designation. It's above. From the contrast of the present Jerusalem, we might expect him to say, and the future Jerusalem, which is to come, John will talk about that in the book of Revelation. There is a heavenly Jerusalem to come. But Paul doesn't use that temporal designation because he wants to highlight a point. In the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his ascension to the right hand of the Father and his pouring out of the Holy Spirit, there's an overlapping of the ages. By faith, that future Jerusalem comes into the present and we obtain a citizenship in it because we are united to Christ By faith. Even now, we are members and citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's why Paul uses the language of the Jerusalem above instead of the Jerusalem to come. But for sure, there is that full and beautiful Jerusalem descending out from the heavens, which will come. Paul bases his reading of the Abrahamic narrative in Scripture itself. So he says in verse 27 For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. This is a quote taken directly from Isaiah 54, verse 1. Here Isaiah is drawing on the Abrahamic narrative, and he's applying it to those who are in exile. Their state in exile is like that of death. Or barrenness is the analogy that the Lord's making. Yet the Lord calls on them, even in this state, to look with faith and to rejoice. And he promises them that despite their current experience in exile, despite these circumstances, Israel will have more children than Babylon, even as Sarah will have more children than Hagar. That was the hope that Isaiah extended to the people in exile. And he can extend this hope because Isaiah 54 follows Isaiah 52 through 53, that beautiful servant song, which talks about the suffering, the agony, the atoning death of the suffering servant, even as he goes to the cross for us. 
And then this chapter opens up with a burst of song and praise. And it gives us the hope of fruitfulness because of the person and work of the Messiah who would suffer and die on behalf of his people. In sitting in exile, they have this hope of a coming Redeemer who would bring fruitfulness where there was barrenness, who would bring life where there was death. This is what gives hope and an expectation of fruitfulness to the people of God. At this point, Paul has offered a close reading of the Abrahamic narrative and has made effective contextual application of it to the crisis at Galatia, grounded in the words of the prophet Isaiah himself. He has primed the Galatians to confront the question of their birth and lineage. Do they want to be children of Hagar and slaves? Is that really what they want to go into? Because that's where they're headed. Or do they want to recognize their identity as free children of Sarah, of the heavenly Jerusalem? And the same question comes to us. Do we belong to the Jerusalem which is above? Do we enjoy the freedom of the sons and daughters of God? And do we evidence that spiritual fruitfulness which comes by our union with Christ, the true Son of the promise? To better consider these questions, we come to our third and final point. We've looked at two mothers. We've just looked at two mountains. Now let's consider, finally, two sons. As I mentioned earlier, the false teachers may have been using the Abrahamic narrative to support their teaching about the necessity of circumcision and law obedience. Now Paul has offered a a contrary reading of that narrative and has supported it through appealing to the prophet Isaiah. Here now Paul again directly addresses the Galatian believers, saying in verse 28, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Throughout the book of Galatians, Paul has argued powerfully and persuasively that the Galatians share in the faith of Abraham. And as those who have received the the promised inheritance of the Holy Spirit, they are children of Abraham, sons and daughters of God. Here Paul is saying that they are like Isaac, who was the child of promise. They are children of promise. This is true of them, not because of any special worth in them, but because they're united to Christ by faith in whom all the promises are fulfilled. Isaac was born miraculously by the Lord opening up the womb of Sarah. And all the Galatians and all of us by extension are born miraculously, being made alive when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Because of this connection, Paul goes on to state in verse 29, But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. In talking about former persecution, Paul seems to be alluding to Genesis 21.9. There, Abraham had a feast for the weaning of Isaac. And Ishmael at that time would have been about 13. And we're told that Sarah saw Ishmael, and the word can be translated playing or laughing or even mocking. Uh, It doesn't say who he was playing with, laughing or mocking in the Hebrew. The text is ambiguous. The Septuagint and later Jewish tradition would say that Ishmael was mocking Isaac. But we really don't know if that was the case. Yet we know that Sarah looked at Ishmael, and in him she saw 
the results of her own sin and Abraham's sins, and she saw a rival to the inheritance of the promise. Just by his existence among Abraham and his other son, he represented a threat to God's fulfillment of the promise. So in defense of her son, Isaac, and in accordance with the will of God, Sarah said, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. This was a hard blow to Abraham. He loved his son Ishmael. But Ishmael was the son of his flesh, born through Abraham's own sinful fleshly efforts to fulfill the promise. So despite her own sin and jealousy, and the Lord was not pleased with the way Abraham and Sarah handled this situation in causing this birth, and the way even they're dealing with Hagar. It's a messy, sinful narrative, and the Scripture doesn't hide from that. But the Lord agrees that the slave woman must be cast out, and the slave child will not inherit with the son of the promise. From this perspective, Paul then concludes, saying in verse 31, So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Here Paul talks about how the child born according to the flesh persecuted the child born according to the promise and says that the same thing is happening now. From his perspective, the false teachers are acting as Ishmael, despising the Galatian believers as children of the promise and seeking to bring them into slavery to the law. But Paul is calling on them to understand their status as children of the promise, for they have trusted in Jesus Christ, the true seed of Abraham, and the fulfillment of all God's promises. They are not of the slave woman, but of the free. The same call comes to all of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as the true seed of Abraham and as the fulfillment of all God's promises. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all sons and daughters of the promise. We are freed from slavery and are children of the free woman. We belong to the Jerusalem above, which is our home. Paul wants us to embrace that identity, to embrace not a life of servile slavery, but a life of freedom as sons and daughters of God, citizens of heaven. We began today by thinking about the parable of the prodigal son. In this parable, we see the great compassion of God the Father and his mercy to save sinners. An easy cap, uh, application of this parable is to focus on the older brother. And we do that, I think, and to say that we should not be like him. That's true. Like the false teachers in Galatia, he sought to keep God's law as a slave in order to earn favor from God. Rather than seeing himself as a son, he perceived himself as a slave. We ought not to do that, and we should learn from that lesson. But something which I think this text of Galatians helps us to mutually understand this parable of our Lord is a different aspect of this parable. So often we focus on that older brother's rejection of the father's grace and his refusal to accept his brother as a brother, but we often don't reflect on the younger brother's repentance and how he no longer saw himself as worthy of being called a son. Yet through his repentance, the father restored his status as a son. All of us who have repented 
of our sins have turned to the Lord. We need to see ourselves as forgiven and embraced. How often do you go about through this life and you're thinking of God as that slave master who's really not pleased with you? You still are trying to spit out that speech that the prodigal son had. But the father's embracing you. And even as we heard earlier today, he's smiling on you because you are in the Son. Embrace your identity as a son of God, as free and as free from all your sins. That is what this text is calling on us. In the parable of the prodigal son, there is the father and the older brother and the younger brother. But there's one character who's not included, and that's the one who's telling the story. Jesus Christ is the older brother who enters into the narrative. He is the one who goes out to get the younger brother from the pig pen. He is the one who lays down his life to bring reconciliation. He is the promised son who makes us sons and daughters of God. Let us all look to him. Let us rejoice that we are redeemed sons and daughters of God. This text picks up on something that I would call a biblical theology of barrenness, as odd as that sounds. You see, God is a God who cares for the poor, for the widow and the orphan. He is a God who gives thought to the barren. Think of all the different characters in scriptural history. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah. As we talked about earlier, this this concept of barrenness, it goes beyond just childlessness, and it's used as a metaphor for the exile itself, for spiritual death. As we talked about, that was how the exile was pictured. But our God is a God who brings life where it formerly was not. All of these Old Testament types, all of these situations of barrenness where life was brought about, even the exile in itself, all of these point to and look forward to the person and work of Christ. Mary was not barren, but the Lord did something even more miraculous. He had the virgin conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, when Christ hung on the cross, he experienced the ultimate exile, barrenness and death. Yet through his death, he brings about resurrection life. It is by the same power that God calls on us who were dead in our trespasses and sins and makes us alive together with Christ. Our God is a God who gives thought to the barren and shows compassion to the spiritually dead. Look to His provision in Christ and experience the life which He brings. In Christ, we are to rejoice because once we were dead, but now we're alive. Once we were lost, but now we were found. Come in to the house of the Father and rejoice in this reality. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. And we ask you to forgive us for our hard thoughts about you. That we think of you as a slave master, instead of paying heed to your graciousness, that you run to meet us on the road, that you cut off our speech, that you do not accept us as slaves, but you call us as sons. 
We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who experienced the death of the cross so that he might have the power of his resurrection and impart that life to us. We thank you for bringing life where there was death. And we pray, Lord, that through the reading and preaching of your word, that you would work in our hearts by your spirit and that you would bear the fruit in our lives, which you have secured for us in Christ, in whom we are united by faith. It's in his precious and merciful name that we pray. Amen.